please turn to the book of Titus, chapter 2. Titus, chapter 2. You might remember that when Paul was writing to Timothy, he was addressing something that is apparently occurring in Crete with the false teachers there. One of the telltale signs of false doctrine is the creation of rules that go beyond what God has told us in His Word. We usually tend to think of these, or a false teaching or compromise, as the allowance of immorality or of gross sin, and that can certainly happen. But at the beginning of the church on the pages of the New Testament, it was much more common that false teachers were those who were trying to add more laws, more restrictions, add more to Christ, as the Pharisees and religious leaders had been doing with the law in Israel. These false teachers, they forbade marriage. We read about that. They put restrictions on food and drink that Jesus had already called clean. And so Paul had told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And then we read this last week. In Titus 1, 15 and 16. So now these things go together. To the pure, all things are pure, right? All things are made holy by the word of God in prayer, we read. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. When Jesus revealed that people are not defiled by what comes into them from the outside, they are defiled because of what comes out of them from the inside, meaning that our natures defile everything because we've not been purified by Christ. And when the author of Hebrews reveals that by his sacrificial death for us, Jesus finally cleanses those who trust in him for salvation from their endlessly defiled consciences, so that our works may finally please him, we learn in statements like the one Paul made here in Titus that good works that glorify God are only possible when we believe that we've been fully redeemed and forgiven and made righteous by Jesus Christ. That's the only way we become pure so that what comes out of us is not defiled. If faith in Christ as sufficient for our salvation is not being built up in us, our works will always be tainted by the unbelief of our minds and the Jesus-denying guilt of our consciences. Everything we do when we don't believe the gospel will be an attempt to earn salvation rather than the response of thanksgiving that our sins have been forgiven, rather than the expression of freedom, all our works will be covered in the chains of our lingering doubt, which is nothing more than unbelief in Jesus. The word of God in which we believe that comes to us through Christ in the gospel is what makes our works holy and pleasing to God. We entrust our lives to him in praying And we live that we may glorify the God who saved us, not pay him off with our behavior. That belief about works defiles everything, even the good things. 
This is why for Paul, as we're learning in Titus, correct behavior and correct belief are inseparable. Inseparable. God creates and nurtures and conforms his people into the image of his son from the beginning of creation by what? By his word. By his life-giving word. Nothing else. And so if we aren't hearing that, the source of life, if we aren't hearing that constantly proclaimed to us, we are making it up as we go. And beloved, salvation left to us will always be an exercise in effort and sweat and good intentions, but futility and in death. The trustworthy word, as it's called in Titus, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and give them eternal life freely by his glorious grace, according to the promise God made before the ages even began, produces good works in us. We learn that in Titus that actually display the message this gospel proclaims. The church is called to live in a way that adorns our doctrine, and our doctrine must be built on the promise God has made. That's Titus 1, 2, and 3. In Crete, many of the believers were apparently living in ways that brought shame on the truth because the false teachers were feeding them lies. Remember, this is... Normally, what they're doing is creating more rules, going beyond Scripture, not less. Right? There's, there's different kinds of compromise. We discover in Titus that whether or not our actions as the church glorify God will depend entirely on the message by which we are being shaped. The Holy Spirit that produces the fruit that is glorifying to God in our lives is present in the word that has been given once and for all to the church. By this truth, God accomplishes his mission to save sinners. And so our works as believers must display God's grace, not our strength. Right? Remember the words of Jesus. Let your, your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So there's a way to do good works as a Christian that people don't even see you. They see your Father in heaven when you do them. And that's... The goal. Our works must display God's grace and not our strength. Paul instructed Titus to give directions to the church to ensure its practice would honor its teaching in the way the believers conducted themselves. And so the purpose of sound doctrine in the church is so that everything, everything adorns the trustworthy word of the gospel, even our conduct. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your mercy. God, as I stand here again this morning, Lord, for your name's sake, open the word to your people. Open our eyes to see the truth. Open our eyes to understand it. Open our eyes to believe it and trust it. As your promise to us, Father, please help me preach so that that is accomplished and nothing else. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 2-1, which we read at the end of last week, but we'll... Read it again at the beginning this morning. But as for you, 2-1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach works that have resonance with the trustworthy word you've been taught that go along with it. There are good works, good actions that accord with the doctrine of Scripture. And then there are works that do not accord with the doctrine of Scripture. Now, some works 
obviously go against the grain of Scripture, right? It's not even an argument we should be having. You can't um, approve of adultery or drunkenness or pride or murder as a Christian with a straight face, right? It's obvious those things go against the grain of Scripture, but people rarely do that. People rarely try to legitimately say those things are God's will. It, it happens, but it's not mainstream. The works that accord with sound doctrine, there are works that accord with sound doctrine because they do not contradict it. For example, we aren't prideful people. Pride goes against sound doctrine because of what we know about our flesh and Jesus and the cross and God's grace and salvation. And so our doctrine means pride is out of place, right? Pride doesn't even look right on a Christian. It's it's completely it will not accord with the truth we teach. It would subvert the truth we teach, right? You, you don't point anyone to Christ or our desperate need for him if we're constantly proclaiming ourselves. And there's an amazing principle here that Paul is bringing out. He doesn't merely denounce heresy as wrong, right? He gives the antidote to it, which is sound doctrine. So that means teaching in the church is not just a matter of teaching the correct propositions, Teaching is how we respond correctly to people who are denying God by their works. Your thinking is wrong, right, is, is what Paul is trying to tell Titus to teach people. You're acting that way because your thinking is wrong. We don't try to get people to simply do different things. Stop doing that. Start doing this. Sound doctrine goes after the mind. It goes after where the problem is. It goes where only the gospel successfully penetrates a sinful heart. It goes after the mind. In Crete, what was happening that did not accord with sound doctrine? What exactly were they do, doing? Excuse me. We already know why they were doing it because of false doctrine, but what were they doing? Whatever it was, we're about to find out, has infected the entire church. That's one of the reasons we know the fault is laid at the feet of the elders, of those teaching. The whole church, remember, whole families have been infected and upset by all this. That their doctrine was not sound shows itself most clearly in the way they're treating one another, from the family level to the church community level. So Paul's instructions to the church here cover everyone. Let me read 2 through 10. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So the theme is very tight in these first 10 verses. The first group Paul addresses is the elder men. 
elderly men in any community, really, in any society or culture are to command respect, right? That, that, that's pretty normal. And, and theoretically, they've earned it, right, to a certain degree at least. They should be sober-minded, in other words, clear-headed, right, not self-indulgent, not cantankerous, griny, griny, whiny. Uh, don't be griny, older men. They're not to be unhinged, right, but dignified. They have a, a decorum about them. They have a handle on themselves. They're not out of control. But if you think about it, again, that could describe older men really ideally in any culture. Hopefully the older men are like that in a society. But here's what makes this distinctly Christian here. Sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. The faith of a man whose heart is set on the Lord as his only hope for salvation, the faith of that man will grow stronger as he ages, not weaker. The, the, the more the truth purifies a man, the more like Christ he becomes. And Jesus will so purify this kind of man's heart that he's filled with love for others, right? That characterizes the Christian older man. Love for others, not fault-finding, not complaining, not finger-pointing or griping that all too often characterizes older men. Bless the hearts of these guys, but sometimes John Rogers and I... Um, I don't know if you're allowed to go in McDonald's now or not and eat inside, but we used to meet there for coffee almost every Thursday close to it. And there is a group of guys in there, older guys, that are just the most angry, loud group of older men I've ever. And look, I don't know them. I don't know their hearts. I, I don't. With my luck, they're all your cousins. I, I don't know. I, I've. But you know, you know what I mean, this group. And I thought there was supposed to be American cheese on this month. It's just all right. All right. Sorry. You know, goodness sakes. So you, 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 <laughs> the, the, ideally, ideally the Christian older man is characterized by patience here. He's marked by patience. Isn't that something? Marked by patience. Godly older men are more kind and filled with graciousness, graciousness than they are with complaining they're not just mad right there's something different about them they're not embarrassing to be around right i i will never i don't know why this is so embedded in my head when when i was first pastoring uh one sunday afternoon christy and i we didn't have any kids yet we went to where every church person we went to hometown buffet for lunch various meats and gravies it's a beautiful you know buffet we're in line behind a, a larger group of, of older people. It's taken a long time to, to get a seat. Sunday afternoon, the whole, the whole town of Reynoldsburg is there. And the older gentleman that was kind of the leader of that group in front of us is just berating the young hostess because they're t they don't have a table yet. And, I mean, he is, he is really letting her have it. You know, I thought, well, why don't you have more tables then? You know, it's a Sunday. It's just this girl, she's not her fault. She doesn't have anything to do with it. But as we're, of course, we get seated before them because we're a party of two. And as we're walking by, the, I see the gentleman just letting her have it. And right here on his suit lapel is a pen that says deacon. Yeah. Servant. Right? I mean, what's the connection between that and doctrine? What we're saying, okay, what we're saying 
is that what I believe doesn't even affect the way I treat people. Right? So don't talk to me about Jesus and reconciliation. Um, right? Don't talk to me about that. You got mad at me because your table isn't ready. The, the distance between that and the cross is so wide, the words don't cover it. Right? And so godly older men are simply men that are patient and kind, and they're marked by it. We have men like that here, older men. There, there's, there's just a different way about them. That's what sound doctrine does. Do you understand that? This is not a blanket text on behavior. It's about doctrine first. And so here, these instructions mean that over time, sound doctrine, Titus, will create kind and patient and loving older men. You're not teaching the truth. The old men aren't acting like this, is what Paul is saying. In the church, when behavior is deficient, right? When we see something in ourselves that's different than what we see in the Word, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, okay, what is being taught? Not, how do you make that man stop acting like that? That's normally what we do. So, so what, what do we do? We do something that will exalt the flesh. We, hype, we, we harp on commitment. You need to get more committed. You need to do stop doing that, start doing this. Paul would say, no, 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 what is being taught? Why is it okay for him to act that way? What does he believe? What is he learning? And if all we ever preach is behavior, as was being done in the churches of the pastoral letters, ironically, we won't produce well-behaved people, right? We've known this from the time we were children. If I tell my little boy, don't touch that, what's he going to do? Right? It's, it's, just, it's, not, even, it's not even a thing. It's so obvious. If, if we could have believed the Bible when it told us very clearly that the law will not produce the righteousness God requires, so why are you relying on it to make people righteous? But we don't. We, we, we always know better. And so we refuse, we train ourselves to not be able to hear anything different than the things we already think. What kind of older women will sound doctrine produce in verse 3? Now, ladies, old and young, actually, please remember something. Please, your pastor has no business whatsoever telling you who you are, telling you what your place is, telling you how to live your life. Agreed? God, however, does. And He is the one speaking to you here. Right? He is the one speaking to you, and you must remember, He loves you immeasurably. And you are precious to Him. That is always behind what He is telling women and men, for that matter. He's always for you. Don't fear God's word for you, ladies. Don't run from it. Run from maybe even a well-meaning but carnal behaving man that wants to tell you. I understand that. But don't run from the Lord. This is your father. Even more than your dad, he is your father, right? Older women are to be reverent in behavior. That's a phrase that just encompasses every area of their lives and how they conduct themselves. And the first way that's done is they're not to be slanderers, Paul says. What we read back in 112, let us know that at least in some way there are cultural issues that 
uh, pose a bigger threat to godliness in particular places and cultures. So it wouldn't be a stretch to say then that there are some things that might affect one gender more than the other, right? That, that maybe a, it, it's more apt or, or more likely that a certain gender struggles with this sin more than the other one does. Generally speaking, slander and gossip, generally speaking, tend to affect older women um, as lust maybe would more generally affect men, right? It's just, it just kind of is more older women are not to be slanderers. That's what he zeroes in on it. The wives of deacons are commanded back in First Timothy 3 not to be slanderers. It, it, it's an issue for that age group, apparently. Ladies, you know how this works. You, you know how this works, right? Bernice, I really like your dress today. It's beautiful. Did you see Bernice's dress today? Right, just the... We don't have any Bernices, so I thought that's a safe, that's a safe name, right? <laughs> no, I'm not, but now we probably have five Bernices and I just don't. But godly older women cannot allow what must be a tendency to talk about others in a harmful way consume their conversations, Paul is saying. It's, it's not, it probably goes, maybe it goes with aging because he's addressing the older women that as you get older, maybe you're doing less and you're talking more. And where words increase, sin increases. The Bible tells us this, which applies to both genders. But this is a calling for the older women to fight the tendency to always focus on what is bad about another person rather than what builds up other people, particularly when they're not around, right? They're not to be slaves to much wine. Again, Christian Christians must exercise self-control if they drink. They cannot be enslaved to alcohol. But notice where Paul goes next with this, because this is really interesting. Because this is a community. Remember, this is a family. Look at the second part of verse 3 into verse 5 here. They, the older women, are to teach what is good. And so, so here's what is good. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So remember now, Paul never says that women should not teach, period. What he says is that they shouldn't undertake to authoritatively proclaim the word in preaching, in particular over men, but older women should, in fact, are commanded to teach what is good to younger women in particular, which means the Bible's design is that we want to be careful to keep older women and younger women together for learning as much as Possible so that this can happen. So, think about this for a minute. And just consider the subtle ways we skip over the Word of God in our practice sometimes. I don't think we do some of these things maliciously. I, th- I think we do what comes naturally and what we've always done, maybe what is more culturally acceptable. But think about this for a minute. What is usually in the church the first way we divide people up for learning by age. The first thing we do is separate older and younger for learning. Why do we do that? We've accepted without even realizing it, the world's way of learning for one thing. All right. We, we just, we assume what well, you can't learn because the experiences are different. And yes, that, 
we divide people up by age mainly. And so there's rarely a context where younger and older women are together for the sake of learning. Older people are generally together with older people. Younger people generally with younger people. That's how we, we pitch church that way to people. We have a class for younger people or we're talking to older person. We have classes for older people. So it's really in our DNA. We naturally resort to where we feel more comfortable. I understand that. Right? I'm not belittling that. It's easier to be around people you have more in common with. I totally understand that. Right? Regardless of what the Bible teaches, that, that's just where we're comfortable. But as a result, think about this for a minute. As we've watched the divorce rate increase over the years, right? Despite of how big our churches become or, right? Something, something's not happening. Something's not working. But most Bible studies become an echo chamber, really, where there's no one informing anyone else, but only reiterating what is believed and felt. We speak from our own experiences to people that are having the same ones, which actually stunts our growth in the long run. And no one wants to bridge that gap because it's extremely difficult to bridge the gap between ages because we just assume, well, we're too different so we're incapable of helping each other. Beloved, this is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Because notice something huge here. Why does this stuff need to be taught? It doesn't come naturally? No. None of it comes naturally. Nothing the Bible commands comes naturally, easily. It, it needs Taught, loving husbands and children properly takes training and not training from the preacher. Training from older women who have done this and have the experience that Paul assumes will help in what doesn't come naturally. Listen, you ha- I, I will always labor to, to make this as clearly uh, or, or to, to preach the word as clearly as I can, the whole counsel of God, I will always do that. But there are some things that the pulpit is not designed to do. Right? I can't make disciples from here. Disciples are when you live with somebody and travel with them and go where they go and spend time with them and become them over time. You can't disciple from the pulpit, really. You just proclaim you just you just shoot out the buckshot and hope it lands, right? You did that that's that's preaching. But we're not capable of loving the way God has called us to on our own, not even our own families. You see the implication in the text for how important sound doctrine is at the marriage level, the parenting level. Right, and, and and you think about that. Well, what's where's the book in the Bible that gives kind of the steps on parenting? There isn't one. You're told husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, the church and gave Himself up for her. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. All right, how? There is no how. Right, so something has to be doing the work. A young Christian woman, no offense is not set up naturally to obey these commands. And often, unfortunately, older Christian women don't really want to help. They only want to criticize younger women because they don't do it the way that they did it. 
when there are so many variables that go into parenting for one thing. And, and again, all the couples we have in our church, none of us knows what the husband-wife relationship is like when none of the rest of us are around. Right? So, so there are so many variables that go into a healthy Christian marriage and healthy Christian parenting. It is so hard. Parenting is so hard. Lord, we're so desperate. We need each other so badly if we're to be a people whose works actually adorn the gospel. What a high calling. How do you adorn the gospel with what we do? Right, Because that's what we're trying to adorn. Christians aren't here to adorn femininity. We're not here to adorn masculinity or traditionalism, or bravery, or empowerment, or manners. That's not what we're here to adorn. We're trying to adorn this message that proclaims Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners by pure grace and not by works. That's what we want to adorn and make much of and make beautiful. When we set up our studies and plan our classes and lessons, do we take heed of what the Bible says should be taught to one another? Or are we just trying to serve ourselves in our learning? So learning is about what we get, not what we give. Right? We focus on classes, not relationships. Right? We focus on classes, not relationships. And I think that's been to our detriment. I'm not saying cancel all the classes. That's not my point. My point is the focus is there and we think when we have a class, you have a program, all the work has been done and now it's up to you to go apply what you've learned. That's not the way it works. Which one of us has ever known a verse and knowing that verse has made us change our behavior? Right? I know I'm not supposed to lose my temper. Guess what I do? I lose my temper. I, I, we all know what we should be doing. Where's the disconnect that it's so not practiced. Everybody wants to know who the Antichrist is, right? Everybody wants to know if Gog and Magog are China and Russia, and so this is what we do our learning for. And Paul is saying, look, we need to be taught how to love our families. We need to be here. Young women need to be taught how to love their husbands and their kids. What a st- strange thing to say needs to be taught. You know how to do it or you don't. No, 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 not for human beings. Never. It's never that. And again, this goes back to the elders. Please hear that. Because if the older women aren't being taught the truth, how can they teach the younger women? Right? And note, please notice the preacher isn't the one doing this teaching here. Right? I'm not trying to get off the hook for something. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to look at the text and, and realize who's being told to do what here. It's not, his, it's not the primary task of the preacher to, to, to walk us through the steps of life like that. What we teach one another is the trustworthy word taught to us by Jesus and the apostles because this is what has resonance with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Then that word guides us through our days and individual moments by the Spirit, not by me telling you what to do. Right? I tell you the truth. The Spirit comes, there's resonance between the Spirit and the truth, and He begins to apply that to us in our lives. Again, you, fruit doesn't make itself grow. 
The fruit of the Holy Spirit is not produced by your effort and your commitment. It's produced by the Spirit. It's His fruit. So what does the Spirit need to be doing that? Need to be doing that. The Word, right? It produces the works God requires. So what the older women are teaching younger women is how to depend on Christ because loving husbands and children is not easy. You might not have known that. That's front page news. It's for free. It's not easy. It's not easy. Beloved, we learn here that the preaching elder's task is mainly to preach the promise and preach the gospel while the individual details are being worked out all the time for the most part in personal relationships. The pulpit is not for life coaching. But it isn't that God has left us in the dark about it. It's that God has designed relationships to be the main context for the nitty gritty learning of life like that. And it's just, we just very rarely do we have that. And for years, the answer was, well, you got to switch from Sunday school to, and have home groups. And okay. I mean, home groups are fine. I'm not, it's not what I'm here to do, right? Belittle one or the other. It's just, it's, it's whether or not like changing the, the, the program, it doesn't do anything, right? It's it just, it, because you change where you meet, it doesn't change anything. We're not going to meet in a classroom. We're going to meet in the living room. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, what matters is the truth, the truth. But we don't even know how to hang out with people of different ages. And again, it's not really an insult as much as it's an observation. We, I don't want you to feel bad because you don't enjoy hanging out with the different demographic as much as you do your own. Please don't hear that. That's not my point. I'm saying, what if the church was the one place on earth where age was transcended by love and patience with one another, as if all were welcome and accepted all the time, regardless of their age or their station in life? Think of how that might adorn the message of the cross, where Christ is saying to the world, whosoever will may come, eat, drink. Have life. Does the church look like in its relationships that that message has water? Right? Older women teach younger women to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Why is that? Again, because men are so much more important than and superior to women. No. What is the reasoning? That the word of God may not be reviled. Everything is Godward. In other words, Christian homes that are out of order damage the doctrine, do not ordain the do- or adorn the doctrine we proclaim. Again, don't hear that as condemnation on you, Christian wife. Please don't hear it like that. So often the problem is in what's being taught, not Paul goes after that so often. Married ladies, God has called you to this. He's called you to be into your husband and kids. It's here. I, I, I don't think there's a categorical prohibition here of a woman having a job. I, I think what Paul is saying is, listen, the Christian wives' priorities are set by God. You don't need me to harp on it, ladies, do you? You don't need me to do that. Every believing woman in this room has the exact same Holy Spirit I do. You know these things. You don't need me to 
harp on it. But Paul emphasizes here that a Christian wife is devoted to what one commentator called the domestic arts. And, and watch society, watch what society rails on. It is always what God has called good. Always. It's always questioning what God has called good. To be devoted to domestic arts, to be into your husband and into your kids as though they're so important to you. That's not a second class life, ladies. And I know it's, 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 of course, a man would say that, but don't hear a man saying it. Hear God telling you that. It's not a second class life. It's not because of the patriarchy. There's no shame in this. Ladies, do you realize how much more skilled and better you are at this than men are? Men act like we can do anything. Do you know what would have happened if my wife had to be here and I had to fix my girl's hair this morning? Or the, not the teenagers, nobody's allowed to touch their hair. But the boy, I mean, the, the, even, even the boy, like, like when Carmine hurts himself, I don't generally rush down, oh, are you okay, buddy? I'm like, get up! Right? It, I mean, it's, I'm not bragging. But you, you understand what I'm saying. Ladies, you are better at this than men are. Don't be ashamed of it. Why? It's not a, it's not an insult to, to, to be what God has designed a woman to be. That you're insulting God when you say that. God never says do that because men are worth it. That's not the point. There's something displayed about Jesus in a wife's submission to her husband, a, a wife's, um, Love for her children, that there's something about Jesus that's made more plain when a wife does that than when she acts differently. And that's the point, right? It's, it's, it's so much more than gender. And of course, the world makes it about gender. You know why? Because it's not about gender. So they make it like that's like they make everything about race, right? Sometimes it's not about race, but if you make the whole conversation about that, you can't say anything. And that's what they've done with truth. That's what the world has done with God's word. It's, it's why is our culture ashamed of a woman loving these things? Well, first of all, because it's God's idea and we hate God and we want to rebel against him every chance we get. Also, because men can be oppressive and unloving and unkind to women with texts like this. And so that doesn't help. But think about it. A, a chauvinistic, misogynistic, abusive, controlling Unloving man is nothing like Christ. That is not who Jesus is and does nothing to adorn who Jesus is when he acts like that. In other words, if somebody takes that text and acts like that with it, they're not reflecting Scripture, they're subverting Scripture. Now, one way you could try to get around these commands is to say what many people do, even in Christian scholarship, that, well... Of course, Paul said this. Paul was simply reflecting the culture of his day rather than the actual word of God on the issue, which just subtly eats away at the inspiration and authority of Scripture. But that's another conversation. But, you know, Paul was kind of controlled by the culture of his day. He wasn't really telling us what God, what God's will is on this issue. But the problem is that Paul doesn't make that distinction in the text. Why would we be willing to believe that the Apostle Paul was so enslaved to the views of his culture that he just couldn't distinguish between what was cultural and what was God's word? 
while at the same time today being asked to believe that modern liberal interpreters of Paul see God's word so much more clearly than he did because they aren't affected in any way by their culture. It it would be better to just believe Paul, just trust Paul that the Holy Spirit is having him write what he's writing. It's safer to trust the word. Christian wives are called to submit to their husbands so that the word of God may not be reviled. And you, you might say, well, see, that, that's the thing. It doesn't that kind of teaching actually revile the word of God to the world? Doesn't Christians believing that wives should submit to their husbands, doesn't that revile the word to the world? Doesn't that make people hate the word of God in the world that we actually teach these things? Paul never teaches that the word is reviled by honoring and submitting to it. He never teaches that the problem is the word. He teaches that even when we, God's people, disregard the word in our own hearts, it makes it seem as though this word is not the means of our salvation. It's not sufficient to keep our souls steady because if it was, we'd believe it. And so it's reviled when it's obvious that we don't, right? That's the point Paul is making. We revile it by reviling its worth in our neglect of it. That shows it as something that isn't worth putting your faith in, that doesn't save. Of course the world will hate the word of God, but his people can't. We, we cannot hate this book. We cannot hate what it says. The father who wrote it is too good to hate it in the details. Living by the word of God is not to earn our salvation. It's to show that the salvation God gives is sufficient. You can trust him so deeply that you can obey commands like this that are so difficult and seem to make no sense sometimes. Right? How good must this father be if you can trust him enough to obey this? And again, remember, parenthetically, when you can't, when the Bible commands something you come to realize you cannot do, don't quit. Run to Christ. Tell him the truth. I cannot do this. You don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. You don't know my kids. First of all, yes, he does. And secondly, listen, this is going to sound so harsh and not as kind as I hope it will, but either we trust him or we don't. Either he's worth trusting or he's not. And if he's worth trusting, then when he talks like this, it would make sense to believe him. You can trust him so deeply that you can obey commands like this. How good must he be if you can trust him so much? There it is. That's the point, beloved. That's how the truth is adorned. Wives, no one should say this is easy or it comes naturally. Obviously, it must not, right? Maybe even more so for sisters in Christ who are married to unsaved husbands. The difficulty of that life, beloved. It won't be, marriage will not be easy. Both parties will resist all that God has designed for that relationship, Christian or not. It doesn't come naturally in the church. You see this. But he gives more grace. God gives more grace. 
His way is always the better way. He framed us. He designed us to run a certain way. And if you put the wrong oil in the engine, it won't run at all. So, beloved, these instructions here mean that sound doctrine also creates reverent older women who faithfully teach that truth to younger women. Sound doctrine creates younger women who are self-controlled, pure, into their husbands and kids. The word of God is sufficient for all those things. And again, if it doesn't do it by giving you steps, how does it do it? How is it sufficient if it doesn't tell me what to do in every given situation? Maybe that's not what God is after. Maybe the way the word is sufficient is by constantly reminding you that Jesus has kept the promise, done all the obedience, forgiven all the sin, and you can trust him and he'll take care of you as you weave your way through this life. Yes, this is his will. Yes, this is his design. Yes, we should obey these things. But beloved, it does not come naturally. And when it doesn't, it doesn't mean he kicks us out of the house. Right? That, that's how the word transforms. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. You see, that, that won't make you self-exalting. Why does he love me? Because Jesus stands in my place. Right? Jesus has made me lovable. I am not. But when God looks at me, he sees the DNA of his son. That's why I'm loved. We look to him. In verse 6, Paul tells Titus that the younger men in the church should be self-controlled. You feel, oh, that's so brief, but it's such a blanket term, right? Covers the entire life of a younger man. It's almost funny that Paul says it in one sentence, because younger men are like, just be self-controlled. Just, right? Just, you're not going to listen for more than two seconds. Be self-controlled. It's a blanket term, covers the entire life of a young man, addresses his godliness in physical things, financial things, spiritual things. Sound doctrine creates then younger men who keep themselves in check for the sake of others. And then since Titus is the preaching elder and the leader of the churches in Crete, it's not that he simply gives instructions to other people. Notice here, he must also be shaped by sound doctrine in 7 and 8, right? He says here, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Titus has to work out what is good for the church and his actions are to be in order. So the preacher not only needs to say the correct words, he needs to do so with the right attitude, with integrity, dignity and sound speech. God wants to take away from the enemy any weapon he could use against the church. So the Holy Spirit instructs Titus through Paul to have a godly attitude that shapes his words, chooses his words, shapes his tone, his delivery, so that nothing bad can be said about him. Well, he's a jerk, right? You you don't want that to be able to be said and it be true. There's always going to be people that hate you and will run you down and say things about you. You can't really do much about that. What Paul is saying is, look, don't do anything that makes their accusations true. Right? Don't give any creed. Don't let them gain that little foothold. Sound doctrine creates then preachers who speak and live in such a way that no shame is brought on what we preach. If we aren't students of the word, we study and labor. If we aren't that, 
so that we're shaped by the word of the Spirit rather than our own opinions and preferences, we will bring shame on the church. So we're not men that have this, I'm looking down on you, holier than thou, taskmaster. The preacher is, it needs to be the example of the one who's broken by grace. That would be the goal. Because we can upset whole families and whole communities if we preach ourselves and not Christ. We want to be people that the hurting people in our community would run to, not from. Right? And finally, Paul speaks specifically in verses 9 and 10 to bond servants in the church, Roman slaves in context. The gospel governs, governs every sphere of life, including uh, social relations that began in sin, like slavery. God is Lord there also. But the gospel addresses, if you'll notice, the sinfulness of everyone in that sphere, from the slaves to the masters, as he instructs them elsewhere. In other words, there's no assumption in the text that the only one capable of sinning in the slave-master relationship is the master. The slave can sin also, Paul says. And so, um, Jesus subverts the whole institution when he calls on slaves to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Few things have the power to prove the sufficiency of God as our Father and Christ as our Savior than submission in the midst of injustice. Not because what Christianity is really about is keeping the oppressed oppressed. And so you control them with these spiritual platitudes. No, 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 no. The reason few things have the power to prove the sufficiency of God as Father and Christ as our Savior than submission in the midst of injustice is because what else could more clearly proclaim what the cross of Christ was? Again, there is no injustice that goes farther or higher than what Christ suffered to bring us to the Father. Nothing else even touches it. So when we show submission in the midst of injustice, whatever sphere that happens is, what are we doing? We're adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior, with it. Right? We, we, we are those who have died to the need to have the world praise us and think highly of us. We, we don't need that, right? In, for real. Now we may feel like we need it. I'm saying we don't. This probably refers to household slaves, what the teaching stands for any that would be in that state. His words here are stronger really than what he has to say to slaves elsewhere in his letters. Maybe again, maybe Cretan slaves were more difficult than others. Who knows? But they're told not to be argumentative. In other words, they're not to be mouthy. They're to please their masters by the quality of their work. They're not to pilfer or take advantage or be insolent. They were were to be honest and trustworthy. That would tear down the institution of slavery in ways that insolence and pilfering couldn't because those things will not penetrate the heart of the master. They'll, They'll harden it. But notice how even here the reasoning of Paul remains the same, right? We say that the theme of this section is so tight. Here's the point. The gospel forces us to die to ourselves, not as a moral command. But because we've been released from needing this world to accept us or save us. This behavior is 
so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So what we've read here, there's a way of living that adorns the gospel and makes it attractive. Just like how jewelry can make something more beautiful. That's Paul's purpose here in saying adorn. That's the image he's painting. When that happens, when our living makes much of Jesus in his word, people see the beauty of Jesus in that. They, they, they come to Christ. And then, as that things like slavery go away, right? it'd be really hard to own people if you knew Christ and his mercy for you. Difficult husbands become loving ones when they're penetrated over time by the gospel. And you can, you can hear the wives, how long does that take? I don't know. But we trust the word. We trust the word. Gossip begins to look so out of place, right, that nobody can take it anymore. It just feels so wrong when Christ is saturating a place. It just feels so wrong. It feels so out of place. And none of this is accomplished by simply pushing or guilting people into acting right. That's what false teachers do. Okay, that's what false teachers do. They guilt and push you until you straighten up and fly right. And what happens is because we're naturally sinners, we rebel against that. And so we need more rules to keep us in line if we're ever going to be in line. The gospel doesn't work that way. Notice here there are no instructions on how to do what you're told to do. Don't ever miss that when you see it. That's very important. Why? Because that's not the way God does it. Israel had the law. Did they do it? Did they act right because it was so clear? Down into the details of how they washed and what this color sore meant on your arm. And if a hair was growing out of this one but not out of this one. That level of detail you still can't obey? No! So why go back to that? Why think the more specific we get, the clearer we get, the harder we push, then people will straight. No, they'll sin more. We need a savior, not a rule book. That's not how God keeps rules. It's not how God produces holiness. The righteousness God requires was provided by his son dying, his perfect son dying and rising from the dead for you and I to believe in. It happens by preaching the truth of the trustworthy word of the gospel that came to us from Christ through the apostles. When Jesus is lifted high in the preaching and teaching of the word as the all-sufficient Savior, whose blood and obedience fully forgive us and gift us with all our righteousness, the more that is preached, the more we stand in awe of it. And beloved, this is how we're transformed. God's way. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed by the same Spirit from one degree of glory to another. Transformation for the Christian comes from beholding Christ. Jesus, where do we behold the glory of the Lord, you say, when you hear a text like that? We behold it in his word, in the gospel where Christ and his righteousness have been revealed Sound doctrine is doctrine that reveals Jesus as he's been revealed in Scripture. Jesus is lifted high to be marveled at so that our conduct adorns the message we speak, right? You want a culture where nobody can look at themselves. We're all marveling at Jesus. That's how God has designed the church to run like a machine. Look at how sufficient Jesus is. I'm free. 
I'm free from living for the reasons the world, the flesh, and the devil give to me. Look at how good Jesus is. I have everything I need. I lack nothing. We're commanded by God specifically in the different roles of our lives in ways that will uniquely adorn the gospel we preach relative to those roles. God is giving dignity to the submissive housewife. He's not belittling her. She can adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ in the changing of a diaper and the loving of her husband. It's an amazing thing what God has done. An amazing thing. God is not trying to make us moral. Christ has already made us righteous. Morality is preached by all religions. There's nothing whatsoever unique about morality. Heathens are moral often. Only the gospel sets people free. Only in the gospel is obedience, not the means of salvation, but a result of it. So, and I'm almost done. I'm almost done. When a wife submits to her husband, she isn't proclaiming the glory of the male figurehead in her life. But the all-satisfying salvation and sufficiency of Jesus. What is she saying in doing that? I can trust Jesus. I don't find my identity in my husband's acceptance or rejection of me. My identity is rooted in who Christ is and he holds my life in his hands and I trust him. When an older woman refuses to give in to a lifestyle of slander and irreverence, she's saying, I can trust him. I don't need those cheap moments of satisfaction that come from running other people down so that others think more highly of me. Jesus has already accepted me. I don't need that level of applause. Right? When an older man refuses to be a conniving, angry grouch because he doesn't get his way in the church, He's saying, I can trust Jesus. I don't need to get my value or identity from what I'm able to control or from getting my own way. When a preacher doesn't get his identity or value from his results or from his applause, he's saying, I can trust Jesus. He's, uh, Jesus was glorified because he's been proclaimed faithfully, not because people think highly of me. Right? When a slave doesn't pilfer or slack off in his work, but respected even his master, he was saying, I can trust Jesus. My God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has granted me every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I lack nothing because Christ is my inheritance. Beloved, that says something to the watching world. Who is, who is this person you've deemed worth all of that? Oh, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about him. We are not given these commands because we must perform righteousness to be saved. We are given these commands that we have been given because Jesus Christ has set us free. And that truth, that reality, that fact will be displayed and adorned by lives that are just lived for different reasons, different motivations than the ones people in the world live for. Good doctrine ensures that not only, or not only that good works are pure because they come from faith rather than unbelief, but that such works are beneficial to the whole body of Christ. So often we do good works for ourselves to feel better about ourselves. I guess we're still trying to earn our way, find our identity, get stability. Maybe we want praise. Or maybe we honestly feel like we need to do them in order to be saved. And, and so often that's the motivation for good works. There's no love in that. Right? There's no freedom in that. 
Sound doctrine is the means by which God cleanses us of those impurities, though, beloved. The purpose of sound doctrine in the church is so that everything adorns the trustworthy word of the gospel, even our behavior towards one another. Sound doctrine proclaims and reminds and teaches us that we're completely dependent on Jesus Christ, but we're also safest there because of how glorious and sufficient he is. Obeying these things displays that sufficiency. And, beloved, that's the point of Christianity. Proclaiming and displaying the salvation that Jesus Christ has purchased for sinners like us who believe in him. Both our doctrine and the commands are designed to serve that purpose. Remember the heart of God revealed in the pastoral letters. He desires that all kinds of people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And everything about the church is designed to serve that purpose from its structure to its behavior. This is how central the word of God is and must remain in the church. It's why we must be in order. There's a gospel to proclaim and display. Jesus has designed his church to do that from the bricks and mortar to the people. The word must not be reviled. It is too good. The message is too sufficient. Jesus is too glorious. He saves He keeps forever. You and I lack nothing. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ. Keep us, O God, in your love and in your grace and your mercy. Watch over our lives. Watch over the steps we take in the weeks to come. Watch over our church. Watch over the valley. We ask and pray for these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.